So this evening is going to be again on contemplative understanding, number two. The other night we talked about Samma Samadhi, right concentration, or rather right calm abiding. And we also said that samadhi goes hand in hand with panya or understanding, wisdom, investigation, discernment. There are actually two sides of the same coin. And if correctly practiced, they should constantly feed each other and constantly nourish each other. They are traditionally uh, imagined as two animals under a yoke so that uh, they cooperate in a very close way. Each one without the other is not the right one. So tonight um, it will be interesting to say something, to explore Panya, to explore Panya a little bit, to explore, to begin exploring understanding. The vehicle for understanding, the vehicle for panya, is called mindfulness, it's called sati. We cannot develop investigation and understanding if we don't have this very basic strength, this very basic faculty, which is sati, which is mindfulness, awareness. We can literally think of it like a vehicle uh, which moves around and uh, takes understanding, which gradually develops with it. So much so that in uh, many schools of this tradition, uh, the term satipanya is used. In other words, they are put together because as soon as you start using mindfulness, some understanding, uh, begins to happen. You know, if you look and look again, you start seeing. So that's why sati and panya go together. And also to indicate that uh, sati, that mindfulness, uh, more and more should develop understanding in order to mature into sammasati, into right mindfulness. There is this uh, famous image in the text which says mindfulness, awareness, attention is like the hand which uh, collects, which takes uh, some grass together, whereas uh, wisdom, uh, understanding is like the uh, sickle which cuts the grass. So just uh, uh, taking the grass gathering the grass is not enough. 
that is the job of mindfulness, of attention, then we need the factor of understanding. And also one last word uh, is that uh, we should always remember that all these factors we've mentioned, samadhi, sati, and panya, uh, are included in the Eightfold Path. So they should co-work, they should cooperate with all the other factors of uh, the Eightfold Path. Sometimes um, suggestions about mindfulness, about attention, are given in a, in a, in a vague way, like it's very important to be attentive and uh, um, the importance of attention. This is too general. We need a number of other factors uh, in order for the attention to be effective and in order to be able to be attentive. We need a lot of support from other sources, beginning from Samadhi. Just to have a, um, a first um, impression, a first um, image about right mindfulness, um, I was just thinking of a few verses by um, American poet Robert, Robert Frost. I don't remember them well, but more or less they are like this. Um, he says, I turned to God to talk to him about the helplessness of the world. But unfortunately, I saw that God was not, wasn't there. God then turned to me. It is true, don't laugh. But he saw that I wasn't there. So being there, being here, being fullness of presence in the present, in the present moment, is the gist of mindfulness. Becoming fuller, becoming more alive, more totally alive, is the idea behind, full, behind uh, mindfulness. So there are ways in which mindfulness uh, sometimes can be misunderstood, like using mindfulness as a sort of shield, in a way of shielding ourselves in life, like tiptoeing and trying to protect ourselves. Uh, basically using mindfulness as a way, as a means to control situations. But that is not really mindfulness. It's like a defensive mechanism. Or uh, using our attention in order not to be wrong, in order not to behave in certain ways, because we want to be socially acceptable. But that again is fear, is not mindfulness. Actually, it's fear plus an awareness. Like if you use mindfulness or attention to control the situation, that is attachment plus an awareness that we are attached. 
and we might be so confused as to call that mindfulness. Situations in, in which we are split, in which we are divided, in which we are suffering. But real awareness, real mindfulness means uh, more fullness. It is recommended in this tradition that two things, especially two things, go together with mindfulness. And these two things are one external factor and one uh, inner factor. The external factor is Kalyana Mitta, spiritual friends, good friends. And the internal, the inner factor is Apamada, is diligence. The first question we should ask ourselves is how much diligence we put into reaching out for spiritual friends, uh, which is often something, for some reason, uh, quite neglected. Maybe there is some individualistic myth, Western myth behind that, that we can do it all by ourselves, that we don't need help, that uh, it is, um, like inferior, needing help. But Kalyanamitta is very highly praised. And uh, um, a definition of a good spiritual friend is very inspiring, is uh, someone who can patiently listen and caringly listen, someone who uh, can talk in a very inspiring and inspired way, someone who never would lead us into the wrong directions. And we should wonder uh, you know, how much we uh, work into these directions of, of uh, getting more of this uh, factor into our lives, of this support. Now, the other factor is Appamada. When the Buddha died, he said, Appamadena Sampadeta. Strive on, work with Appamada, work with diligence. Maybe diligence doesn't give a full idea of what is implied, what is entailed by this very strong word, very uh, full word. But we should remember that um, originally, diligence in Latin meant love, just loving something. Before Appamada is loving care and attention about everything which helps the practice and helps the path. Appamadena Sampadeta, strive on with all your strength, with, with all your heart. And the Buddha also said that um, Apamada is like the elephant footprint, is uh, the biggest one, and in the elephant's footprint, all the other footprints can fit. The, the, the footprints of other wholesome factors can be included, are included in this big footprint. Um, in other way, he says that Appamada has, in some sense, 
uh, first priority in taking care of our path, in taking care of our inner work. This capacity, this readiness to do good, this readiness to work with any form of suffering at any time. You know, this is true apamada. This is true and mature diligence. The mind which is ready to work. The mind which is not afraid to work with whatever arises. So apamada is closely associ associated with sati, with satipanya, and is closely associated with this sense of fullness, which should gradually permeate more and more our sati, our satipanya. As we all know, the Noble Eightfold Path begins with right understanding. In other words, we need some basic understanding to proceed along the path. One basic understanding has to do with, with what is called the law of cause and effect. And as we will see, an understanding of the law of cause and effect has very much to contribute to our practice of mindfulness. I'm not thinking of uh, the law of cause and effect in terms of uh, in, uh, rebirth, in terms of uh, past life, future life, but I'm, thinking, I'm talking of cause and effect in terms of this life, something which, which is um, immediately at hand, something which is testable uh, through our experience and to our, through our practice. This life, which is short, painful, and beautiful. Um, sometimes when we address the Dhamma at the beginning and we hear about the law of cause and effect, maybe we don't get particularly excited about it. It sounds so obvious. Why are they making such a big fuss about it? There is cause and there is effect. We knew that already. But in course of time and uh, just practicing, we start realizing more the uh, impact and the importance and the relevance of this law in terms of what we do in terms of what we are. Basically, what this law is telling us is that we live in, an ener in a, a universe of energy, in a universe of power. Each action, each thought, each intention has a power. There is no such thing as a, a a non-fertile, a non, uh, a something which is not a seed either of happiness or unhappiness. Any intention, any thought, any word is a seed for happiness, of happiness or unhappiness. Our conditioning can easily uh, have us believe that 
Some action, some plot has consequences, but many other, many other ones stay there, disappear, are of no consequence. The law of cause and effect uh, does not agree with this view. And it's for us to test in our practice and in our life. Whenever we do something, this something is something which will bring us happiness or unhappiness. In the present, while we're doing it, and in the future as well. The future, uh, close future, I mean, next future. And of course, it, it is said also in the far future, but we are not dealing with that. Suppose someone uh, pushes some of our buttons. I like, this is a specific English expression. I like, very much. <laughs> like we have button 6A, and that one gets pushed. And we react, as we've been reacting for many years. Maybe it's an action, maybe it's a word, maybe it's a thought. But it's the same old reaction, which goes according to a certain momentum. And whenever we react in that way, that momentum builds up and gets stronger and stronger. It's a habit, it's an addiction. There are chemical addictions and there are mental addictions. Attachment, aversion have to do with mental addictions. We are very attached to our attachments and we are very attached to our aversions, often. And that's a mental addiction. And in the same way, alcohol wants more alcohol, and heroin wants more heroin. So a mental habit has just the same uh, effect. We react in a certain way, we reinforce a certain way of reacting, which brings us more momentum in that direction. When we talk about the conditioning of the past, we are not talking about something vague, something made up of memories and ourselves indulging in those memories. We're talking about the incredible momentum that doing certain things, thinking certain things, has uh, created. And that's the law of cause and effect. But more and more, something in our lives tends to harden. And we, if we don't do any kind of inner work, it's getting heavier and heavier. And it's very visible. The, 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 the inertia, the momentum that builds up and hardens up. So we create unhappiness while we react. It's a form of suffering. We react and we are so used to it that maybe we think it's not suffering. But practice is going to show us that it is suffering. Whenever we react, whenever we fall into reactivity, we suffer. So we suffer right on the spot, on the moment, in the moment. And we will suffer because on, 
on, on our next uh, occasion, we, we have a little bit more momentum and a little bit less trust. We've taken away a little bit of trust indulging in the same old pattern. And so we have less strength next time. So we're going to suffer in the future. We're going to be in trouble because we've just uh, followed blindly that momentum. We've got more alcohol, more mental alcohol. So more, more, more weakness and more blindness. But if we, and this is uh, the virtue of the Dharma, the virtue of the, practic of the practice, if we uh, revert this process and we try not, instead of reacting, we try to respond, to be mindful, to be equanimous, then we have a seed of happiness which works right away and in the future. If we respond, if we try to uh, be mindful, we are going to suffer less in the moment and we have more strength for our next opportunity. We have more trust that at next opportunity, at next occasion, will follow this new positive momentum. So from a seed of happiness, you know, possibility of new happiness, possibility of changing the momentum from destructive momentum to constructive momentum. Once we see through the practice and the study of the Dharma, one, we start seeing more this universe of energy, this law of cause and effect, we inevitably tend to become more mindful. The realization of this law organically makes us more mindful, motivates us, motivates us towards more mindfulness. The more we understand how much power we have in our hands, negative power or positive power, we become more mindful. We understand that that momentum is negative, is destructive, and we understand it more and we understand it more. And so we want more. That tool, that instrument, satipanya, which helped us in the first place, so this basic understanding, this beginning of right understanding, which is the law of cause and effect, has very much to do with the use, with the, with the right use of mindfulness and with the becoming fuller because we feel more responsible once we see this uh, universe of energy, once we see the directions, positive and negative directions. And so we become fuller human beings, responsible, creative. We don't want to use all that power in a negative way. We want to use it in a positive way. It's true creativity. And so we, we, we care for satipanya, we care for mindfulness and understanding more and more, and we protect mindfulness more and more, and therefore the practice and the law for the, practice, for the practice we were talking about the other night. 
if we just think of it, we are taking care of the understanding of suffering and the causes of suffering. It is not that we want to use mindfulness because it's beneficial in a vague way. It's a specific tool to understand suffering and the causes of suffering. Sometimes people can be put off by the emphasis which Buddhism puts on suffering. But I think what is important to understand is that our concept, our perception rather than concept of suffering changes a great deal through the practice. Dukkha means the form of suffering that we know, but more than that, and more deeply than that, it means the constant insecurity of being human. The constant changing, changing quality of human life. And this we can see in a, in a more precise way, usually only through the practice. So at the beginning we might be easily put off because we equate suffering with our idea of suffering, of something which you can have or you can't have, uh, lucky people don't have it, and uh, 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 you know, uh, unfortunate people have it. That is not uh, what is talked about. And through, through, through the use of, of right mindfulness, two things tend to happen. The first thing is that we become much more aware of suffering. The first thing is that our perception of suffering increases. And the second thing which increases is the perception that it's possible to go beyond suffering. So if one had to summarize the practice, I think this would be quite accurate. What happens with the practice? Basically, these two things happen. Seeing suffering and seeing the possibility to go beyond suffering. Maybe that before practicing, we uh, were not seeing either. And it's no coincidence that uh, in this tradition, it is said that the four truths go all together. You cannot, understand one, you, you cannot understand one truth about suffering and without understanding the other one. To some extent, they, are, they have to be understood together. Now, now if, we, if, we, if we want to look a little bit more closely, at how um, satipanya works, I think we should, we might um, think of a model uh, uh, with three stages. The first stage is um, total confusion. It's the raw stage. 
say, the stage when we have no idea whatsoever or any kind of, of, of inner work. Uh, in a sense, there is unity there because there is only chaos. So there is some, some form of unity is there. And um, if, we, if we knew where we are at, but we don't know, that's the specific quality of this stage, maybe we would walk around, walk around with labels on ourselves saying something like highly inflammable, fragile, <laughs> danger, handle with care. <coughs> Then we start having suspicions about this uh, stage and uh, we start doing something about it and we start practicing. And the second stage we might call functional division. We divide into an observer and something which is observed, which is the practice of mindfulness. For instance, we wash our dishes and we want to pay attention to ourselves washing our dishes. So we, here is me, whatever that is, and here is uh, the activity in progress. And I try to bring my attention to the washing of dishes, uh, same way as we bring attention to, uh, to, the, to the breath. And more and more in, uh, in these days and in the next few days, we'll, we'll be bringing uh, mindfulness to other areas so as to be able, once we are out, of this place to bring more awareness and mind mindfulness in our lives. I think we should, we should uh, stop a little bit uh, at this stage and uh, explore together, investigate a little bit the way it works, this functional division. I say it's functional because the third stage is unity. There is no more division. There is spontaneity. There is natural mindfulness. Ease of mindfulness. Now the Buddha is called Sadasato, which means the one who is mindful all the time. And if we think of the Buddha being Sadasato, we don't uh, come up with an image of someone who's tensing and sweating in order to, you know, to get every, uh, to, uh, being afraid of missing something about that. <laughs> Mindfulness, awareness has become natural, spontaneous. You know, after doing exercises for many years, someone becomes a good pianist and, and plays the piano in a very spontaneous way. Or, just to think of a more modest example, before driving our car, we were rather clumsy because we were always having a conflict. There is this task, learning to drive a car, and there is me trying to do it. But at one point, it became just one, and uh, we did it in a spontaneous way. Anyhow, let's look at this uh, intermediate stage. Uh, Last night, Larry talked about anger, and I want to read to you this wonderful passage by Thich Nhat Khan about dealing with anger. Uh, it uh, was published in uh, Common Boundary Journal uh, last winter. The Buddhist attitude 
is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. You know, these are strong words, utmost tenderness. Becoming angry at your anger only doubles it and makes you suffer more. If you leave it alone, it will be destructive without the company of mindfulness, in other words. You will say and do angry things. Also, if you don't say or do angry things, it will still continue to destroy you inwardly. The Buddhist practice is to go back to breathing and recognize your anger as anger, using the breathing as a help, as an anchor. The important thing is to bring out the awareness of your anger in order to protect and sponsor it. Then the anger is no longer alone. It is with your mindfulness. Anger is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on the flower, the flower will bloom because the sunlight penetrates deeply into the flower. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing and sponsoring your anger, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep breathing on your anger, shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you'll be able to look into its depths and see its roots. After reading this passage, continuing a Dharma talk is really hard. <laughs> there's, there's not much else to be said. Actually, there is a little bit. <coughs> Just to, to, um, to clarify. Mindfulness, in order to be effective, should have some acceptance to it and some understanding to it. This is very obvious from what we just read. If mindfulness is cold, is distancing mindfulness, all these beautiful things are not going to happen, unfortunately. So mindfulness has to mature through the practice. We can decide to be very mindful and to be, in some, to some extent, mindful, but again, these results uh, cannot happen if we haven't some, somehow softened. If there is acceptance, 
then there is a unification process. These two polarities that we had to, 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 to have, you know, the observed and the observer, then merge. We needed to make this distinction, this division, to come out from that confusion, from that total mass of confusion and ignorance. So we needed these two poles, these two polarities, in a sense yin and yang. But we should work so as to come to a marriage and, and, and unify the field. Acceptance and understanding are the keys for this unification. Let's go back to the cause and effect law. In the Tibetan tradition, it is said that our practice is like working the earth. If we want a plant to grow, we need a seed, we need water, we need soil, we need sunshine. In other words, we need causes and conditions for the plant to be born and grow. Same with our practice. Which means that we, if we see that our mindfulness is not very accepting, is not this type of mindfulness, we should investigate our conditions, the conditions of our practice. In other words, how much care we've been taking of all the conditions which make a good practice. Are we taking care of whatever it is that is needed, the sangha and the study and the intensive practice and the daily practice and, and the guidance? Because all this is included in, in, in a maturation, in, in a ripening of, of, of that accepting quality. It cannot come overnight. It comes from causes and conditions. So we, we cannot expect to have it. We cannot take the plant and just drag it. It takes times. But as the Dalai Lama said somewhere, he said, the time factor is very important, but once you have grasped the importance of the goal, you really don't care about the time. So it takes time, but if we have seen somehow the importance of the goal, we are having a good time. It takes time, and we are having a good time. We are not complaining about all the time that this business is taking. It's a very different attitude. Acceptance and understanding as being essential to the, the working of, of mindfulness and exploration and investigation. So that more and more, satipanya, awareness and understanding, becomes natural, becomes less of a task, less of an effort, and more an inclination, more a preference in our lives. As though we said, uh, we said to ourselves, but what else is there? What else is there to be done? See, we can think of a really simple 
sage person, he or she would do things and obviously be aware, because what else is there to be while doing something? Just doing something. We think it's natural, thinking of other things. Maybe it's not natural, maybe it's sick. Just, we come back um, to understanding the day after tomorrow, but just uh, by way of ending, I would like to stress one last element coming from the use of satipanya and the growth of warmth, of acceptance, which comes. Doing this thing which Thich Nhat Hanh describes in such a deep and poetic ways, more and more shows us the urgency of the practice. Show us how much urgent the practice is. We are less and less sleepy and um, unresponding in terms of the urgency of the practice. In the Buddhist tradition it is said, wake up, your house is on fire. And it's also said in the famous Mahayana text that the Buddha, as a good father, um, seduces his children out of the house which is burning with some toys so that they come out and they are saved. Toys are skillful means, upaya. And I think it's up to each of us to understand which ones, in our case, the skillful means are to get out of the burning house? What do each of us need? What does each of us need in terms of skillful means to get more into the practice, to respond in a non-tense way to this feeling of how urgent the practice is? Because the other aspect which makes it paradoxical for our ego, at least, is that at the same time, if mindfulness is practiced in this way, in Thich Nhat Hanh, the way that Thich Nhat Hanh shows, we, together with the urgency of the practice, we have relaxation about the practice. We know that we cannot pull the plant, so we are relaxed about it. We feel an urgent need in a relaxed way. Hasten slowly.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.